You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Free City Church. I am so glad that you are with me this Easter. I'm so glad that we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and all that it means together, even though we are not presently together. When I say together, that's not an attempt to be sarcastic or even to mock the present circumstances. I say this in a fuller revelation of things that I have read over and over, but not really understood until now. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is instructing the church at Corinth through letters. And it's evident that he is concerned for them and that he misses them so. But he reveals to us something unbelievably profound. And it is so helpful for our present situation. He he says something that I have often read over and paid no attention to. He says something that I have even dismissed as weird or maybe a little new agey. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. My spirit is present What a promise for us today. As you gather in your living rooms or wherever you are on this Easter morning, in the name of Jesus, our spirits can be present with one another. How? It says because the power of God. And I I think I might know some of your objections. You you might be saying, "But, but wait, this is just a podcast. I can't even see you. They couldn't see Paul either. He wrote them a letter, and yet it says that he was with them. Or you might say, wait, this is pre-recorded. We're not even sharing this in the same time. Neither did they. He wrote them a letter. Paul received word about the difficulties that the Corinth church was facing. A church whom he planted and whom he loved. Paul was grieved by the news that he heard. Paul thought about what he should say, and then he wrote it down for them. He wrote it from Ephesus, sending it with Titus and an unnamed companion who most likely traveled almost 400 miles around the Aegean Sea to the city of Corinth. They were separated by space. Some 400 miles. 
They were separated by time, maybe even weeks apart. And yet Paul said that when they assembled in the name of Jesus to worship Jesus, to hear from Jesus, our resurrected Lord, to be instructed by the truth of the gospel, his spirit was present. So I say again, Free City, I am so glad to be with you on this Easter morning as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter morning. For some 20 centuries, the church has gathered on Easter to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. These realities, the life, death, and resurrection, they're they're not peripheral to the faith. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not like a nuanced theological point, agree to disagree type of issue. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is Christianity. John Stott said, Christianity is at its essence a resurrection religion. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. This is one of Paul's points in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, If the resurrection didn't happen, let us eat, drink, and be merry, because Christianity just collapsed. It is dead. It is for nothing. But if it did happen, if Jesus did raise from the dead, well, I mean, that changes everything. That that is saying, if Jesus was God-made man and he died a substitutionary death for us and was resurrected again, beating sin, Satan, and death for us, it should produce a radical new loving and a radical new living. For those who are skeptical or, or investigating, they haven't decided about Jesus, let me invite you to question deeply. I'm not going to ask you for blind faith. I don't think God asks you for blind faith. But please, let me direct you just a little bit. Don't start with questions on the edges of Christianity. Don't start with things like political stances, behavior acceptance, or anything cultural. Start at the very middle of Christianity. Start with Jesus. Was Jesus whom he claimed to be? God incarnate. The God who put on flesh and was made man. Contrary to the belief of many, the Bible doesn't leave that up for debate. Did Jesus die on a Roman cross? Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. Most of us have probably heard that. But have you ever wondered why you've heard about that? I mean, the Romans crucified tens of thousands of people, probably more than that. But can you name one other person whom they crucified? Why would we know about a poor carpenter from a nowhere place turned itinerant preacher who lived 2,000 years ago? Why do we know so much about the life of Jesus? And, And let me emphasize something else on this point. Jesus died on that Roman cross. He didn't experience a heart murmur. It wasn't like a skip a heartbeat kind of death. It was a three-day, no pulse, wrapped up like a mummy, cold, stiff kind of dead. Jesus died. And Jesus rose from the dead. Something happened. Something started a ripple in history that has not calmed. Nothing else in all of history has made the splash that a poor Middle Eastern carpenter turned teacher and then killed on trumped-up charges made. Others have made waves with armies, wealth, and power. 
But Jesus surpasses them all with a message of forgiveness of sin by his substitutional death. That is the gospel. That is the claim of Christianity. That is a huge boast. Start here and see where the answer takes you. Don't start on the peripheral edges of what Christianity says about your sex life or political holdings. Start with Jesus. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then who cares what he says about anything? But if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the boast of the cross and the resurrection is true, then, just then, he might have dominion over your life. Start with Jesus. Just a minute ago, I said the boasting of the cross. Boasting. This text is actually all about boasting. Look down at verse 9. It says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What precedes that is our current status of death in verses 1 through 3. Then God's riches of mercy and grace in verses 4 through 5. And then a raising up of us to the seat, to seat us in the heavenly realm that mimics Jesus' resurrection from the dead, a permanent place in verses 6 through 7. And then it really summarizes it all in verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus has come to give us a solid and unchanging boast to build our lives upon. The text talks about the boast of Jesus' resurrection. And we, of course, we all know what boasting is. Boasting is bragging. Uh, we, we have four kids, and therefore we have a ridiculous amount of boasting in our house. Currently, Kenzie is the bar hanging champion, followed by Anna, our five-year-old, and then I am in third place. I mean, it's not fair. They don't have any body weight. Uh, you know, this is a month into the pandemic, and it produces these kinds of challenges. You know, Cruz has his own boast. Currently, he's pretty excited about what he calls his bad boy hips. He, he puts his hands on his hips, and he doesn't dip, then dip, we dip. He puts his hands on his hips, and then he moves them from the left to the right with a look on his face that says, Oh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I, I know these things are ridiculous, but have you just ever wondered, why do we brag or boast anyways? Like, ridiculous or, or legit, why do we do it? What, what, what is boasting about? Boastings are claims of worth. It is questioning or asserting, am I good enough? They are attempts to produce solid ground for existence, acceptance. It's not just kids and silly competitions. You and I boast to establish our worth and our identity. And so much of our boastings are shaken right now. As adults, we boast in things like careers and paychecks. That, that doesn't feel very solid right now. Or maybe it's wealth and investments and portfolios. I mean, what does your retirement portfolio look like right now? Like I told Kinsey, we just won't even look at ours until tax season 2021. Or, or how about marriage and family? You boast so much about your perfect life on social media until you were stuck in a house with your whole family for a month and counting. And suddenly, you're scared. 
You, you thought your marriage was solid until you had to spend so much time together. You thought you were a great parent until your kids weren't at school for seven hours a day. Do you see how easily these boasts are shaken? What do you boast in? I mean, do you even know what your constant boast is? We are looking for something to boast in, something to validate our worthiness. One of my commentaries about this section says this, Paul attacks the doctrine of justification by works, so he opposes all boasting based on self-trust. Every attempt to affirm oneself before God or others by boasting in one's achievement is excluded. To boast is tantamount to put one's confidence in the flesh. And this the apostle decisively rejects. Here in Ephesians, the apostle makes it plain that salvation by grace alone destroys all human boasting. Men and women have nothing which they can bring as their own to the living God. Paul, the once doubter and enemy of the church, wants the church, wants you to know that believers in Jesus do not need to boast in anything other than Jesus' completed work on the cross, other than his resurrection and all that he accomplished. He is going to remind us of three things. He's going to remind us where we were, dead and enslaved. Then he's going to remind us what changed us, the intervening grace of God. And then finally, where are we now? And then in verse 10, he says, we are in the poetic plan of God. And so let's get started. First, Paul reminds us what we were, spiritually dead and enslaved. Look, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, this spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature's children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It says we were dead. Verse 1, it gives us three words that describes the existence of every human being who doesn't know Jesus, dead. And then it tells us why, trespasses and sins. Those are our words, dead, trespasses and sins. Verse 1, go back to it, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Dead, dead is dead. It doesn't say that you had bad habits. It doesn't say that you were sick or that you were really, really, really sick. It says dead. And the thing about dead is that it comes with a lot of inability, lots of things you can't do, like everything. We, we just watched Onward, the new Disney animation where a dad dies leaving two sons, but later he, he comes back from the dead for a quest, but he doesn't all come back. Only half of him comes back. His bottom half. And with only his bad boy hips and legs, he has a lot of inability. He can't grab. He can't hear. He can't see. He can't talk. But he, he also has a lot of ability. I mean, he can walk and move. I mean, he can feel some things. This doesn't say half dead. It says all dead. No ability. When it comes to our spiritual standing, this says we were all dead. All we have is inability. 
And, and our death and inability is caused by at least two things. It says trespasses and sins. And so look back at verse one again. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Like the first, it says trespasses or, or sometimes translated as transgressions. No, notice that it's in the plural form. I think it's in the plural form to draw attention to individual acts of sin that mount up like the many individual grains of dirt that eventually bury us all. Our many trespasses have buried us in a spiritual death. It goes on and it says sins. And and that's just another way of saying trespasses. It's a synonym. I mean, the actual word is harmatia, which is the general word for sin that means missing the mark. It's like your internal scope is off. And no matter what you do, you just keep missing the mark. No matter how hard you try, you're just off. And that offness is resulting in in many trespasses. I think... I think Paul says both because he wants to further describe the depth of our problem. We have a broken and corrupt internal scope. It is brokenness in us that is causing brokenness to come out of us. And all we have is dead inability to deal with it. This was us. This is the past of every Christian dead in sin. It also says that we were enslaved to something that only brings more death. Like, look in verse 2. It says we were enslaved. Like, pick that up with me. It says, in which you once walked following. Like, stop right there. It says walked and following. Walked is followed by the Greek preposition kata. It's usually translated as down from, alongside, or throughout. But all translators struggle with it because they know that it is describing something more enslaving. It is walking while being hard-pressed from above. It is walking while being strongly escorted by our side. It is being thoroughly constrained in every part of our lives. This is why, eventually, if left to your own efforts, everything falls apart. Like, even if you have a good marriage for a long life, death Pulls it apart. This is why eventually, like everything falls apart. It goes on to tell us what is enslaving us. Look at this list. At the end of verse 2, it says, In which you once walked, following. And then it says, number one, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And then in verse 3, it says, who lived in passions of our flesh. And then it goes on to say, carry out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of, human- of mankind. This, this lists at least three forces. Forces from the outside. Forces above. And then forces inside. And I think all of these forces, when combined with the sin language before, are feeding a problem that is inside of us, the off-scope of our lives. It's feeding sin, and then we could describe it as a deadly self-centeredness. You see, we are pressed from the outside. In verse 2, it says, the course of this world. The course of this world could be understood as the culture of this world. Like, do you not feel pressed from the world? 
Does it not make you constantly conscious and overly critical of yourself? Are you not gripped with comparison from social media and the neighbors next door? Like this pressing is from the outside, but it is making an inside monster that is constantly evaluating whether or not I measure up. You see, that enslaving monster is self-centeredness. The Bible calls it a sin nature, and it is more deadly than you dare to admit. We are pressed from the outside. But it goes on, we are also pressed from above. It says, following the prince of the power of the air. This is describing Satan and his spiritual forces. He is your sworn enemy. He hates you because he hates what you look like. Because you were created in the image of God, and he hates God. Satan works against us in two primary ways, temptation and accusation. He whispers temptations like, you deserve more, and they're getting it. Or or accusations like, you're not enough, and you never will be. This is pressing from above, but, but it's growing an inside monster that only thinks about itself. That enslaving monster is is in you. It is self-centeredness. The Bible calls it sin. It is our sin nature, and it is more deadly than you dare to admit. We are pressed from above. We are pressed from the outside. But are we not pressed from the inside? You know, verse 3 where it says, the passions of our flesh. The flesh means you. This pressing is from within. It is thoroughly throughout my being. It is called my self-centered human nature. The Bible calls it sin. This is what pulls everything around me to be interpreted in such a way as to make much of me. This is why this is why you tell half-truths or dodge condemning questions. This is why you hold the phone a certain way when you take a selfie or a video for a church announcements during a pandemic. You want to look a certain way. This is why you dismiss some pictures even when your kids look great because you look weird. I mean, they, they're kids. They always look cute, right? Seasons like what we're in, it forces us to see more of these effects. You know, Kenzie and I, we have talked to moms who are being suffocated by mom guilt because the social media threads of their friends, it looks like they want to play with their kids all the time. I, I've talked to husbands who are scared to death because of all the extra time with their wife is exposing major problems in their marriage. There's a pressing from the outside and it's enslaving. There's, there's a pressing from above and it's enslaving. There's an impressing from inside. And it isn't creating the monster of self-centeredness. It's exposing it and it's feeding it. You've always had it. You were born with it. It is in you from day one. And the Bible says it's deadly. You know, right now we could, to prove that it's in you, and the Bible's always said that, we could get very theological and show you how we inherited our sin nature in Genesis 3 from Adam. And then we could jump to greatly expand on it in Romans 5, where it says the death that came through Adam and the life that comes through Jesus. But but I I just want to go with observation. Those with small kids. Is it more natural for them to think about the needs of others or their needs? Theirs. And if if you didn't just amen that in your living room, you don't have kids or you haven't had kids in a long time. And there are some kids somewhere who call you grandma. Ephesians 2 tells us 
that we were spiritually dead and dead is dead and we were enslaved from above, from outside, even from within. And it is seen in our growing and presiding monster of self-centeredness that is present at all times, like a crooked scope that never lets me hit the mark. That is what we were. But Paul goes on to say, but something changed us. What changed us? What changed us was the intervening grace of God. You know, in in verses 1 through 10, it's actually two sentences. You know, the the first sentence is verses 1 through 3. Its subject is you, and its predicate is we're dead. You were dead. The second sentence is verses 4 through 9. Its subject is God, and its predicate is made us alive. You were dead, but God made us alive. The phrase, but God, in verse 4, changes everything because God changes everything. Read this with me. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that by the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we, we could get into that and we could pull so many things apart. But really what I want to do is I want you to look back at verses 4 through 9 and I want you to make parallel statements. And so look at this. And we're going to add that the book, the book God in verse 4, it carries out through the entire sentence. And so look, if we, if we looked at verse 1, back at verse 1, it says, We were poor in righteousness because of our sinful trespasses. But then verse 4 says, but God is rich in mercy. Jump back to verse 1. It says, we were dead in sin. But verse 5 says, but God made us alive with Christ. Verse 2, it says, we were captive to Satan. Verse 6 says, but God raised us up with Jesus. Verse 2 says also, we were enslaved to this world. But verse 6 says, but God seated us with Christ. That's an exalted position. Enslaved is down low. Seated is exalted. Verse 3 says, but we were children of wrath in our flesh. Verse 7 says, but God showed us grace in Jesus. The phrase, but God changes everything. Our state was poor, dead, held captive, enslaved, and deserving wrath. But God was rich in mercy made us alive in Christ, raised us up, seated us, and gave us grace. And then it goes on. I mean, look at verse 8 and 9. Look at how careful verse 8 and 9 is to remove any and all cause for us to boast about what we might have done. Look at it. It ends with, so that no one may boast. But just pull this apart. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved. Grace is only grace when it is given. It can never be demanded or erred. For it is by grace, an unmerited favor from God, that you have been saved. Through faith. That should actually be translated as through faithfulness. And it's not through your faithfulness. It's through Jesus's faithfulness, not yours. And that's how we know is the next phrase. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It's Jesus's faithfulness, not your faithfulness. It is God's unmerited favor toward you, not your doing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Next phrase, it is the gift of God. God is the giver. You are not the earner. Though we often demand it, it is a freely given gift. It's by grace, through the faith of Jesus. Not your own doing, but the gift of God. And then verse, it goes on to say, not a result of works. Just to be emphatic. It is a gift from God. You didn't earn it. Not a result from your works. This is by grace through the faithfulness of Jesus. Not your doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of your works. And then it says, so that no one may boast. Look at that. Like you have to admit that this is saying that we're not super helpful in this process. Like when was the last time you had some good kid help on a project? It's probably been too long. We just washed our cars with a lot of kid help. It took well over two and a half hours when it should have taken maybe 45 minutes. They, they would take the, the soapy sponges and then they would take them and they would throw them on top of the car to clean the top, to clean the top. And then, you know, after you would, you know, stop and you would fetch it for them, they would get it to ready to throw to do another throw cleaning. Once one side is done and rinsed, you would be on the other side working only to realize that they wanted to help you out again on the clean side. They helped. But I mean, I mean, hey, I mean, what else are you going to do when you're, you know, sheltering in place? Like, do you see that the actions to change us are all from God? And that all that we have is the recipient of those actions. We receive those actions. The gospel doesn't make bad people good. It makes dead people alive. And that is what makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world. God came to make you alive. God came to raise your spirit up, to seat it next to him so that he could breathe life into you. It's astounding to me when people describe to me why they passed on Christianity. I'm just perplexed. They don't describe Christianity at all. They, or, or, or they start with statements like, I just can't believe in something that's so archaic in gender or sexuality. D does that prove that Jesus didn't raise from the dead? Like, start there. Like, we were spiritually dead and enslaved. But the grace of God intervened in Jesus Christ. Jesus came, died, and rose again. And now finally, where does that leave us now? Like, where are we now? This says that we are in the poetic plan of God, boasting about his goodness and his goodness alone. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, it says, It is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Like that says, we don't need to boast in anything else because nothing else is solid for us. Nothing else can hold us. Nothing can stay. Nothing has the staying power. Why you were dead and enslaved, but you should boast in this. No one may boast except for this. And then look at this. In verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The, the word workmanship is translated from the Greek word poema. It's where we get our word poem or poetry. Like, Christian, do you ever think about your life as the poetic creation of God Almighty? The God who sustains everything around us. The God who created the Grand Canyon and the cosmos. You are his poetic creation. It's poetic. Poetry is not just created for utility. It's created for beauty. That is why you write poetry. You write for beauty and for deeper insight into that which really matters, even though it can't be held. If this is true, then think about it. Like, think about a magnificent symphony. It has movement. Think about it and lay it next to your life. It will resound with reverb from dark but rich depths of unsettling low tones. But it won't stay there. Those low tones will build and give way to exuberant melodious praises. Like it, it goes from lows to highs. It has slow seasons and it has quick seasons. There's a movement to it. But when taken all together, it is a masterpiece and it is beautiful. Christian, even today, even today, because of the work of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrecting power that we celebrate on Easter morning. Even today, you were created for good works, and it is poetry in your life. And even when seasons seem dark and slow and unstable, they will give birth to beautiful, exuberant, melodious praises, which God has prepared in advance What does it look like to walk in them? What does it look like to walk in them now? The the, the cross, it shows us what God is willing to do at infinite cost to himself. It shows us what what he can do with perceived, with, with darkness and suffering, what looks like loss in the moment. It shows us what he can do. The gospel is the good news about something that has happened. It is the finished and done. It is done. Have you accepted that? If you've rejected Christianity, is it based on evidence against the resurrection of Jesus? The gospel places you solidly into a relationship, a status, a solid footing that will never give way. Isaiah, he says this, For though the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall never depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Do you have that unshaking boast that can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus? The cross of Jesus proves that glory can come out of death, love from hate. And Ephesians 2 says, you are God's unfolding poem, poetically created for beauty, not for utility, and he is not done. If you find yourself in a low, dark, ebbing moment of that sonnet, 
Have hope because the morning will give way to praises. Oh, Jesus, let that be true. Pray with me. Jesus, Lord, may we look at Ephesians 2 and may we have hope. May we, we remember that we started in nothing but inability and that's all that we brought to you and we were saved by grace. Your grace intervened into our lives and now we are living a life that is described as poetic in nature. It's for beauty. And that life will have high, mellow moments, but it also have low, dark tones and everything. But when we get to the end of it, we will see that you created good works in advance for us to walk in. Lord, may we see that even now. May we know our neighbors who need help and need hope. May we give them the truth of the gospel. Jesus has done it, and it is steady, and we can boast in it because of the resurrection power. Jesus. It is all about you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Free City, I love you more than you know, and I eagerly anticipate that coming Sunday morning when we will gather together again and praise Jesus with our collective voices. Even now, Jesus is good. Even now, and maybe especially now, the church is alive and at work because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free City Church, we exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll see you soon.